1895, a case called Coffin versus the United States came before the Supreme Court. It was a complicated case, alleging more or less that three men had aided and abetted a fourth in committing bank fraud. The most important thing that came out of that case? The idea that a person is to be considered innocent until proven guilty. Here's how the court explained it. The principle that there is a presumption of innocence in favor of the accused is the undoubted law, axiomatic and elementary, the court wrote, and its enforcement lies at the foundation of the administration of our criminal law. The presumption of innocence is fundamental, embedded in the guarantee of due process laid out in the Constitution. But there's a flip side to this idea of innocent until proven guilty. It's that once you've been found guilty of a crime, it is really hard to prove you're innocent even when you are. I think one of the biggest myths about the criminal justice system and and the way it functions is that most of the time we get it right, but in the slim chance we get it wrong, we'll be able to correct it down the road. And that's just not true. That's not true on any level whatsoever. That's Jessica Sino. She's a lawyer and a dean at the law school at Georgia State and Devani Inman's tireless and most determined advocate. So... The system, once you're convicted, is, I won't call it rigged, but once you're convicted, it's meant to keep you there. That's because the system operates with the idea of finality in mind. The Supreme Court has said as much. What really matters is that you got a fair trial. If the courts think you did, then that's it. And that is, almost entirely, the final word. That's a a complete design fault with the system. Like, it's designed to keep people there. It's designed to minimize challenges to convictions. It's this, you know, notion of finality. So we will do everything possible to keep people where we think they belong. But what if you didn't get a fair trial? What if you're found guilty, but you're not? What if you're Devanya Inman and you've been locked up for 20 years, insisting you're innocent, and almost no one with any power to help seems to give a damn? From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Georgia. It's been three years since we started reporting this story. And the whole time, there have been lawyers working on the case, too, trying to find a way to exonerate Devanya Inman. There are plenty of reasons to believe that he's innocent, including new information only recently uncovered. So does he have a chance? First, let's review. Back in September 1998, Donna Brown was murdered in the parking lot of the Taco Bell in tiny Adel, Georgia. She was killed by a single bullet fired at close range. It tore through her right eye. The Adel police quickly turned the case over to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI. That's pretty routine for small departments in rural Georgia when there's a major crime to solve. In 1998, this crime and this town fit that bill. GBI agent Jamie Steinberg led the investigation, and he quickly focused on a 20-year-old man from California, Devanya Inman. His family had deep roots in Adel, but aside from yearly visits to see his relatives, he was pretty much an outsider. Focusing on Inman, Steinberg ignored other leads. Good ones. In fact, as he homed in on Inman, folks around town were pointing to another man as the real killer. Hercules Brown. Some even told the investigators about him, and that he was responsible for Donna Brown's murder. They didn't listen. 
Inman insisted he had nothing to do with the crime, and there was zero physical evidence tying him to it. But he was charged with it anyway, and after an equally messed up trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole. But even before that, even as Devanya Inman sat in jail waiting to be tried and facing the death penalty, there were three more vicious murders in Adel. In the spring of 2000, a man named Salish Patel was beaten to death in a relative's home. Again, the GBI was brought in. And again, there were rumors. Talk that Hercules Brown had something to do with it. Patel's murder remains unsolved. And just months after that, more bloodshed. The gruesome bludgeoning death of William Carroll Bennett, owner of a mom-and-pop grocery and lunch counter, and his employee, Rebecca Browning. They were killed in the store, just before lunchtime. Within an hour, a suspect was picked up. It was Hercules Brown. Steinberg had a hand in that case, too. And ultimately, Hercules pleaded guilty to the double murder in exchange for prosecutors taking the death penalty off the table. He's doing life in prison, too. Devanya Inman had been locked up for more than a decade when lawyers looking into his case went back to a key piece of evidence that had never been tested for DNA. A mask made from gray sweatpants. It had been left on the passenger seat of Donna Brown's car the night she was killed. When Inman was on trial, the prosecutors said that it was worn by her killer. In 2011, the lawyers finally had it tested. There was DNA inside, from a single source. It belonged to Hercules Brown. I'm Amy Maxwell. Amy Maxwell was the executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project when she received a letter from Devanya Inman asking for help to clear his name. When we met Maxwell, she and her team were working in a former nail salon in a strip mall in Decatur next to a Walmart. The old carpet had been ripped out to get rid of the smell of chemicals, but otherwise, the space had all the remnants of the previous business, Nails for You, including the price list hanging on the wall. Devanya uh, first wrote us in 2000. Two, I believe. So he's case number 63 um, of now we're up to almost 6,500 cases that we've looked at. So we started looking at his case early on and have stayed with his case all through the many years. Maxwell was really affected by the case. There was just so much wrong with it. Probably one of the, the things that stands out first is how many of the witnesses recanted or changed their story, um, and how many of them um, had to be brought to court from jail or prison. Um, it, it was very telling who the, the witnesses were against him. Um, and, you know, the, the recantations, you know, the question is, do you believe them then or now? You know, you can't figure out when they're telling the truth. Do you really want to put a man in prison? With life without parole, that's, you know, that's the shocking thing and could have possibly been death. Um, is that really the kind of evidence you want to use when you put somebody in prison? And there was even more crappy evidence. There was the jailhouse snitch who said Inman had confessed to him and then asked what he might get in exchange for telling his story. And the newspaper carrier who came up with an elaborate and implausible claim about seeing Inman fleeing the scene in Donna Brown's car and who only came forward after Inman had been arrested and after a $5,000 reward was offered. In short, each of them had a clear incentive to testify against Inman. So there really was no witness that put 
Devanya at this scene or in any involvement at all that wasn't incentivized. That's why the DNA found on the mask inside the car was such a game changer. The evidence against Inman at trial was just weak. And there were all those people who said that Hercules was responsible for Donna Brown's murder. And now his DNA, and only his DNA, had been found on the mask. To Maxwell, it was clear that Inman deserved a new trial. Maxwell and another attorney with the Georgia Innocence Project, Christina Cribbs, dove into Inman's case. Thousands of pages of trial transcripts and police reports. They got volunteer lawyers from a big firm in Atlanta to help out. After getting the DNA results, they filed a motion with the court down in Cook County. Officially, it's known as an EMNT, an extraordinary motion for a new trial. And it was granted. A judge down in Adel would hear what they had to say. That judge would consider the DNA evidence and decide if it was compelling enough to undermine Inman's conviction and if Inman deserved a new trial. Meanwhile, the Cook County District Attorney's Office, the one that was led by Bob Ellis at the time of Inman's original trial, they would argue against them that the DNA was not important and that Inman was clearly guilty. Ellis wasn't the DA anymore, and he wouldn't be at the hearing, but he agreed with the state's position. We met him for lunch at a buffet restaurant. He talked with his mouth full and kept banging his hand on the table. We never, we never once thought that this defendant was not guilty. We tried to have integrity about what we did. Right. Do you remember what it was in particular that really kind of sealed that deal for you that made you think that he was guilty? I can't, I honestly can't remember. The hearing got off to a rocky start. For one thing, there was the fact that the judge who would hear the case was the same judge who presided over Inman's original trial. Makes it so much more difficult, uh, you know, because it's really hard for anybody to say what happened, what I did may not have been the right thing. You know, I sat, I, I was the judge on this case where there were mistakes made and we may have put an innocent person in prison. That's a hard thing for any human being to say, to, to be okay with. This is common, and not just in Georgia, and it does not inspire confidence. Then the judge made clear that he didn't have much time. Maxwell thought their evidence could take two days of testimony. The judge gave them half a day. If that wasn't enough, he said, they could reschedule. But getting to this point had taken years, so Maxwell decided to go for it. I think we were all pretty confident about what we had. I mean, obviously we were nervous because this is the one shot, right? And, you know, we have to convince the trial judge that let all that nonsense happen in trial. We've got to convince him that what all those witnesses were all wrong and that, that what happened was wrong. They told the judge about the DNA on the mask and why it was so critical. Remember, Jamie Steinberg, the GBI agent, had gone to see Hercules in prison, back when the DNA match first came up. And the interview is a little crazy. While questioning him, Steinberg gave Hercules every single out he could think of. I mean, is there, is there any way, uh, I'm just trying to figure out, is there any way that you could have tried this mask on, or y'all had done something in the past? Is it possible, Steinberg asks, that Hercules tried on the mask at some point? Then Steinberg tries to figure out what kind of relationship Hercules had with Devanya Inman. What was your relationship with Devanya? 
Pinaka, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to do smoke and mirrors, I'm asking. I mean, did you just know that he was in town? I mean, even when, even when that happened, he had not been in Adel very long. I don't really, I don't If you didn't catch that, Hercules said no. He said he'd seen Inman before, but he didn't know him. This is a crucial point. At Inman's trial, the prosecutors, Bob Ellis and Tim Edson, had pursued a conviction with a simple theory. Devanya Inman acted alone in robbing and killing Donna Brown. If that was the case, there is no reason why the only DNA found in her car belonged to Hercules Brown. Maxwell called Hercules as a witness during the hearing, but he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and refused to testify. He wasn't the only one. Maxwell wanted to question the newspaper carrier, Virginia Tatum, about her wild story and about whether she'd collected the reward money after testifying at Inman's trial. She refused to answer questions, too, and the judge said that was fine. And then there was the snitch, Kwame Spaulding. He did answer questions on the stand and said that the story that he'd told about Inman confessing was just that, a story. He'd been coerced by the GBI, he said. The judge cut him off basically said he didn't want to hear about it. We wrote numerous letters to Spaulding, hoping he would talk to us about what had happened with the GBI. Yo, hello, Joe. Smith. How you doing? Uh, this is Kwame Spaulding. I was calling in reference to thousands of notifications you sent me. I'm just trying to figure out, like, how is it beneficial to me? You know what I'm saying? It's going to be beneficial to me, you know? Yeah, we knew what he meant. Definitely would have took a flag. You'd be the whole rundown kind of dangerous, you know what I'm saying? Dangerous. We don't know exactly what he was referring to, but we could certainly make some guesses. For one, no one wants to be out there talking smack about the GBI. Or about a guy like Hercules, for that matter. Even if he is in prison. So in the end, he just didn't talk to us. He tried to speak up once, and the people who could have done something about it did their best to ignore him. To the state, anything he had to say now didn't matter. And neither did the DNA. Prosecutors used a new theory to explain it away. The gray mask might have implicated Hercules, but it didn't exonerate Devanya Inman. The two of them must have pulled off the murder together. They pushed this even though it completely clashed with the theory they presented at trial. We talked to Tim Edson about this. Remember, he's the one who told us that Hercules' mom had provided an alibi for her son and how police and prosecutors believed her, because she was a well-respected lady. When we met, Edson had gone back to working as a defense attorney, traveling between South Georgia and eastern Alabama. We reached him on Facebook. He's an avid user and has a penchant for selfies. He remembered how he found out about the DNA. Now, I know that my ex-wife called me one day, and she was kind of in a in a tizzy because they had got a call from someone. And she says, do you remember that mask that you found? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, they found that it had Hercules Brown DNA in it. Well, it wasn't like it was a shocking revelation or anything. I just said, really, you know? And she said, yeah, they're saying that he might have been involved in the Taco Bell murder. You might ask why his ex-wife found out about the DNA before he did. Well... That goes back to the kind of small town Adel was. 
The reason she called is because Hercules Brown killed her uncle. William Bennett, that is, the grocery store owner who was beaten to death with a bat. And that was my ex-wife's uncle. That's how I knew all of these people. You know, I mean, that's how I found out about Hercules Brown DNA. I mean, nobody ever called me on the phone and said, hey, let's tell you about that ski mask. I, you know, I hadn't worked with prosecution in several years. It wasn't like he was shocking because his name kept popping up during the hearing. Not just at the hearing, but at Inman's trial, too. Back then, several people said Hercules either confessed to them or had asked them to rob the Taco Bell with him. But Edson and Ellis had convinced the judge not to let any of them testify. At the hearing, Amy Maxwell reminded the judge that he had ruled against Inman's lawyers when they tried to introduce that evidence at trial. Is that a nice, euphemistic way of saying I screwed up, the judge said. Maxwell said no, of course not. The judge wasn't the only one being defensive. When Steinberg, the GBI agent, took the stand, he was downright surly. Maxwell asked if he'd done any more investigation after he got the DNA matched to Hercules. Steinberg said no. Did he try to see if the fingerprints from Donna Brown's car matched Hercules? I just answered that question, he said. If there was any doubt the judge wasn't taking things all that seriously, his ruling would make it pretty clear. They lost the case, and Inman would remain in prison. Adding insult to injury, the judge asked the prosecutor to write up his decision for him. That isn't supposed to happen, but it does. This is Maxwell's colleague, Christina Cribbs. He gave no reasoning. He allowed the state to draft the order to explain why the ruling was coming their way. So we really had zero insight into what made the judge go one way or the other, um, and we never did. Um, we do know that he told us um, in, in an email as well that he wouldn't be surprised if he was overturned on appeal, that he thought it was a really close case. We asked Bob Ellis, the former prosecutor, if there was any chance the state might have gotten it wrong. There's a chance that the sun will rise in the West. Yeah, you hope you get it right. I just don't know. Uh, based on what we had at the time, we felt strongly that we had the right guy or we wouldn't have gone forward. We tried the question a different way. In light of the DNA testing that was done um, and the fact that there are people asking questions about this conviction, uh, even if you have a different perspective, are you glad that the jury didn't come back with a death sentence in this case? I think I'm probably neutral. I think it is what it is. It is what it is. It's easy to say that when you're not sitting in a prison cell for a crime you didn't commit. The ruling was confounding to Maxwell and Cribbs. They didn't understand how the judge could just shrug at a clear miscarriage of justice. He knew that the defense had always suspected Hercules Brown was guilty. Now that they had DNA to prove it, he didn't seem to care. So to me, that was a no-brainer. You know, here's what you wanted. Here's scientific evidence. Here's objective proof that Hercules was involved in this. And how do you not get a new trial based on that? You know, the jury should know. So let's have a new trial. Let's present Hercules as an alternate suspect. And let's let the jury hear about the DNA and these people who said Hercules confessed to them. But the judge didn't go for it. And also, the state was now claiming that their entire theory of the case, that Inman acted alone, wasn't their theory at all. Instead, Inman conspired with Hercules to kill Donna Brown. 
Maxwell and Cribbs knew they had to appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. But the law says that the court doesn't have to review the case if it doesn't want to. The Supreme Court decides whether they want to look at the case or not. If they decide they don't want to look at the case, then you're stuck with the trial court's decision and there's nowhere to go from there. And guess what? The Georgia Supreme Court wasn't interested. They rejected the appeal. The lawyers were devastated. They were certain Inman was innocent and that Hercules killed Donna Brown. I pretty much think about this case almost every day. I can't believe that this young man is in prison for the rest of his life based on a bunch of liars. It wasn't long after Maxwell received the news from the Georgia Supreme Court that Jessica Sino walked into her office. Since joining the faculty at Georgia State, Sino had developed a pretty close relationship with the Innocence Project. I wanted to talk and hang out because I I love talking to other lawyers and learning about their cases. And they had just gotten the letter from the Georgia Supreme Court declining review. And so Amy started telling me about this case. Sino was horrified. I think even my own notions of how the criminal justice system worked and how pivotal DNA evidence is in cases was, was tested. She started reading Inman's case file. The more she did, the more disturbed she was. She knew she had to find a way to help Inman. I don't even necessarily know if there's really a way to define what it is about the case other than it's just so appalling and, and depressing that if I don't try to do everything I can, then who I think of as myself as a lawyer doesn't really matter much. Um, th- this is a case that cries out for people to look at and to re-examine and I wouldn't be able to just walk away from it. There were all the recanting witnesses, the people who told the GBI that Hercules was responsible for the murder, the fact that Hercules was in prison for killing Bennett and Browning, and the rumors that he'd also been involved in Patel's death. Yeah, I mean, it's convenient, right? The The minute he gets locked up, people stop dying in this little town. Um, that says a lot. And it would be great if he could answer questions about that. We tried to reach Hercules Brown a bunch of times. He only responded once, with a brief letter. He wrote that he had nothing to say. For Sino, one of the biggest red flags in the case was that the prosecutors changed their theory of the crime— going from Inman acted alone to Inman and Hercules did it together. I would call it a bait and switch, absolutely. And what the prosecution did? It wasn't legal. The indictment that says that one and only one person committed this crime, and they never left room in the indictment for anybody else. So how can they do that? Under Georgia law, they should not be able to do that. The case just offended her. She gathered together a team of law students. They went to see Inman and made a number of trips to Adel to poke around. Finally, Sino enlisted the help of attorneys from Troutman Sanders, a prestigious Atlanta law firm. She convinced them to take over the case for free. But there was a problem. 
The Georgia Supreme Court had refused to consider the case, and that meant Inman was basically out of options. He had no easy avenue of appeal. Remember that notion of finality the criminal justice system loves so much? That's what Inman was up against. The U.S. Constitution does not guarantee that only guilty people get convicted. The U.S. Constitution merely guarantees that you are entitled to a fair trial. And if the system has deemed that even you, innocent person, got a fair trial, then you're screwed. You don't have a constitutional right to come back and prove your innocence after you've been convicted. The whole, the whole point to it is we reinforce finality because we want the criminal justice system to be able to sleep at night. So we can't go around just willy-nilly overturning convictions because, you know, that would be a serious problem. The lawyers would have to find a way to squeeze back into court, and it wouldn't be easy. While they worked on tackling the legal arguments, Sino became Inman's lifeline to the outside world. For the hundreds of hours she's poured into the case, in some ways, that's the hardest part, managing his expectations. It keeps me up at night because, you know, whenever I talk to him on the phone and he always asks me, you know, what are, what are the chances of me getting out? Do, you know, do I have a good chance? He, he wants to be optimistic. And, you know, the, the lawyer in me knows the reality of what he faces of it being an uphill battle. The lawyers wanted to prove that Inman is innocent. But in order to do so, they would need to show that his constitutional rights were violated at trial. Without that, the courts wouldn't even consider another appeal. Not one based only on his claim of innocence. But the chances of finding something new, so many years later, was a long shot. And then, they found it. Last year, Troutman Sanders sent an investigator down to Adele to find more people to talk to. They found Kim Brooks. She had gone to work at the Taco Bell shortly after Donna Brown was murdered. In fact, she took over Brown's position. Hercules was still working there at the time. And what Brooks remembers is a pretty big deal. Big enough that it could get Inman back into court. Brooks said that when she worked at the Taco Bell, Hercules harassed her. He would play like he was going to rob her and hurt her. More importantly, she said that Hercules Brown asked her to help him pull off an inside job to rob the store. He would rough her up to make it look realistic, and they would split the money. This is the same thing that Inman's cousin Keisha Pickett told us. She said Hercules had asked her to rob the Taco Bell, too. But that's not the only thing. Brooks says that at one point, Hercules confessed that he'd done something bad. He didn't say what, but she asked him if someone else was going to pay for it. He said, it's better their life than mine. This is pretty damning, but it's not even the craziest part. Kim Brooks didn't sit on this information. Hercules creeped her out enough that she decided to tell the cops. There was this one police sergeant, Joel Reddick, who would escort her to the bank to do the night deposits. She tried to tell him about Hercules' suspicious behavior, but he brushed her off. Still, she wouldn't let it go. So finally, he told her to call the GBI, Jamie Steinberg. In a legal filing, 
lawyers from Troutman Sanders describe what happened next. Miss Brooks contacted Agent Steinberg to inform him that she believed Mr. Brown to be involved with Donna Brown's murder. In response, Miss Brooks was informed that Donna Brown's murderer had been found and that the case was closed. Miss Brooks believes that this conversation occurred sometime in the months after the murder, but no later than December 1998. In December 1998, Devanya Inman hadn't even been indicted yet. The information that Brooks provided to the GBI should have been included in the police report and shared with Inman's lawyers before his trial. It's what's known as Brady material, facts and evidence that contradict the state's case. But it wasn't reported, and it wasn't handed over. That's a constitutional violation, the kind of violation that could get Inman back into court. This past January, the legal team at Troughton and Sanders filed a special appeal seeking to overturn Inman's conviction. It's what's known as a writ of habeas corpus. The appeal is currently pending before a state district judge. It's a major long shot, and there's no telling when the judge will rule. It could take years, because the law doesn't put a deadline on such decisions. We tried to reach Steinberg again. He previously brushed us off, said Inman's case was closed, and he had nothing more to say about it. GBI, this is Lisa. How can I help you? Hi, yes. I was hoping to reach uh, Jamie Steinberg. Um, he will return to the office tomorrow. Can I give him a message to return your call? That'd be great. Yeah, uh, my name is Liliana. He didn't call us back. We were able to reach Joel Reddick, the Adel cop Brooks told about Hercules. He wasn't particularly helpful either. So yeah, so Kim Brooks, um, the reason we were asking you about her is that in the weeks and months after Donna Brown died, she says that she knew you because apparently you used to be uh, one of the police officers who would provide an escort, you know, to make deposits at the bank. So she knew you from there. And she says that she told you at one point that she had been disturbed by um, some behavior and some things that were said by Hercules Brown, who she was working with at the night shift at the Taco Bell. I don't remember. None of that. I, I, seriously, I don't. Um, I didn't even remember that Kim Brooks you just said. This wasn't a big surprise. For all the cops we've talked to over these last three years, hardly anyone remembers anything. To be honest, we didn't remember who Reddick was. Until we went back to the GBI report. It turns out he was one of the first cops dispatched to the Taco Bell. Only he and his partner went to the wrong parking lot. Twice. First to the Waffle House, and then the Huddle House. Before finally finding the crime scene next door. To Sino, Brooks' story was a bombshell. So I think my reaction at first was, oh my god, this is huge, right? Like there, There's this feeling of elation of... You know, it's not a smoking gun, but it certainly helps his case, especially from the perspective of we have to clear some procedural legal hurdles in order for a court to hear this case. So in one aspect, it's that you think about it like she reported it. She tried to get them to do something. And this was, you know, decades ago. Like, it's just, it's staggering and it's sad. It's infuriating. And I'm not the one sitting in prison. I, I can't imagine how he feels about this. Talking to Devanya Inman is not easy. We've talked to him a number of times on the phone. He's despairing and quite often deeply depressed. These people don't even care about nothing. They don't care about my life. How somebody can just find somebody guilty for something. And they ain't even doing nothing. 
He doesn't understand why he's still in prison, even though DNA clears him. His parents, Dinah and David Ray, don't understand it either. Do you remember when you heard about the DNA evidence? Yes. I remember we were sitting in front of my job in the car on our lunch break when Amy called us and told us that the DNA had came back and it was Hercules Brown. And all we could do was cry, you know, and we thought, this is it. He's going to be coming home soon. But that didn't happen. It's been almost, what, six years? Six years since they had the DNA evidence. And they still ain't let him come home. That's me and my wife. We was like, she didn't wrote everybody, the president to everybody. And we still can't believe this. Jessica Sino has spent a lot of time trying to explain this to Inman and to his parents and to anyone else who will listen. I think that the issue that shocks the most people is, you know, how it is so different from what they read in the headlines of, oh, there's DNA points to somebody else, somebody else who we can actually like go and look at who that person is and see, oh, they actually went on to commit similar crimes to this. And the courts don't care. That they just don't give a damn. And I think that to most people is probably what shocks them because it doesn't, it does not fit into any of those nice little boxes that we like to put wrongful convictions in. We like to think that they get solved and ultimately the wheels of justice turn the way they're supposed to, but in this case, it didn't. And it's not just in this case. We've written a lot of stories about people who are in similar circumstances, innocent and in prison, out of appeals, sometimes facing execution, and nobody seems to care. People think that mistakes in the criminal justice system are rare and just get sorted out on their own. But they don't. In a way, Devanya Inman is lucky, because he has a dedicated legal team actively trying to help him. That's not a given. Still, they may not be able to help him in the end. He may die in prison. This is supposed to be the justice system? My son been wrongly accused of this justice system. Something is wrong with this system. It needs to be checked again. It's not too late, but it's up to Georgia now to fix it. Murderville, Georgia is a production of The Intercept and Topic Studios. Alisa Roth is our producer. Ben Adair is our editor. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Brian Pugh. Production assistance from Isabel Robertson. Our executive producer is Lital Molad. For The Intercept, Roger Hodge is our editor, and Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read our series and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter at Liliana Segura, and at chronic underscore Jordan. Thanks for listening.